0: Hello, welcome to GD Media. This week, we're talking about environmentalism and class. Now, it's one of our favourite things to do. We do it a lot. It was great to talk to Kia Milburn this week, someone who's been involved in class politics and environmental politics for at least 35 years. He was there back in the early 2000s around the actions around Drax um, and was unfortunately kind of involved in the spy cop saga. We'll, We'll kind of get all into that and the effects of that on. On himself and, and the movement and what's not been learned since then. Uh, we discuss who the working class are these days and how the world has changed around them and if maybe they are in a different formation now than they were in the 20th century and a whole load of other stuff. So let's get into it. And welcome to GD Media. I am your host, or as Ads likes to say, half-man-half-mixing deck, Andrew Glassford. As ever, I am joined by the person that brings a lot of credibility to this show, uh, from the sunny climes of northern France this week, it's Lucy Burke. How are you, Lucy? Uh,
1: I'm very well, thank you. Um, it's it's actually been raining, but it's been sunny mostly here, so yeah, that's all right.
0: Excellent. Um, and. Always, we were just talking before we started. Uh, you've got a, a cool new job, I hear, involving UCU.
1: Well, it's not. It's yes. Yeah, so I've been. Um, I was elected onto the NEC, and as part of that, I was then further elected onto the uh, Climate Emergency and Ecological Committee, which means that I can do a lot more work in relationship to putting kind of green issues at, at the centre of national bargaining. I hope that's the plan, anyway. So. And a lot of work thinking about this investment and banking and where these big institutions put their money. So I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. We've not met yet as a committee, but um, yeah, I think I think it's hopeful. So yeah, that's what I've been doing.
0: Amazing. I, I'm I'm a green rep for, for Unison where I work, and as we're saying off off air, just kind of trying to get my head around how you kind of mix collective bargaining and climate change together. Which maybe we'll get into a bit of that with, with our guests today. Speaking of that. This week we are joined by someone whose work I enjoy very, very much as a big fan of ACFM and pro-revolution soccer. It is activist, writer and author of Generation Left, Keir Milburn. Keir, welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. This week is a bit of a wide range of conversation. Uh, Normally our mate Ads, who does the show with us, we let him talk about class all the time because he's got a much more northern Manchester voice than us two. Uh, So we're, we're... Parking tanks on Ads' lawn at the moment. Um, but first, before we kind of get into talking to about class and politics and everything in between, the first question we ask all our guests is when was the moment that you kind of became class conscious, not class conscious, sorry, when was the moment you became climate conscious when you kind of realized that climate change was a massive problem, you had to dedicate a part of your life to it?
2: Well, let me answer both the question you asked and the, and the question you asked by accident. Because <laughs> <laughs> they might be related, actually, because like yeah. that I grew up. Um, just outside Swansea, up the Swansea Valley. And the town I grew up in was like, what I'm, it, was, um, it wasn't It was a mining town, but like there were mines up the road. My next-door neighbour was an ex-miner. He was uh, invalided out, actually, by the time the strike was on. Oh, yes, yeah, so I've just given my answer away. The moment <laughs> I became really class-conscious was during the miners' strike of 1984-85, uh, I, for all sorts of reasons, but basically it was happening right on my doorstep, you know what I mean? Um, and i gonna. I mentioned that, so we might bring it up later when we talk about the complexities of class and, and eco- ecology and so forth. you know, not long after that, actually. When I was in school, I remember my my. I think it was my geography teacher. I can't remember. There's the first mention of climate change. Yeah, now, that sounds a bit scary, but you know, in the 80s, we were worried about <laughs> uh, nuclear apocalypse as well. Now, that was my first apocalypse was the new, <laughs> the threat of nuclear war, basically. Um, yeah, and so. Um, I, like from that moment, you know, from that sort of uh, moment when I was in my late teens, I think I became aware of this sort of thing, and it one of those th- one of those those awarenesses that sort of grew quite, yeah. quite sort of uh, of rapid, quite rapidly. And I remember in nineteen eighty nine is when the Green Party they suddenly won fifteen percent in um, in the the European elections that were held that year, which is like I don't think they've ever come close to that anywhere again. And it was suddenly this thing of like there's there there is a, you know, there's something happening here. And like that's yeah. more or less when the first international agreements around that 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 climate change was like man-made, it was happening, it was a big problem, sort of emerged. So I remember that as one of the spurs of trying to think through uh, you know, what that would mean, basically. By that point I was <laughs> I was like a young anarcho-punk, um, sort of, you know, sort of anarchist, but like it would be a class struggle anarchist sort of uh, sort of thing. So that like it was a, you know, one of these things where you had to take those, take this new thing on board, and it did take yeah. me, you know, it took me quite a while for it to become really central. I think
0: I imagine kind of confronting climate change had a bit of an effect on your kind of anarchist positions on on, on your politics. So how how did that evolve at, this, at that time?
2: Uh, well, to be honest, it only knocked me out of, uh, out of anarchism into, you know, my sympathies are probably to a more libertarian form of socialism mm. or something like that. Um, but, um, it, you know, it, it basically, oh, I can tell you a bit more of a story. Let me tell you. Please do. Let me it's, tell you, we're, Lucy, we're all about the stories, <laughs> <laughs> No, at the end of the 90s, um, the 90s are a difficult time to do politics, basically. You know, there's quite a, quite a, when I was, you know, the early 90s was actually quite hopeful that... You know, we didn't understand what was going on with the fall of the Berlin Wall. I, I remember going to like you know an East a Western radicals meet Eastern dissidents meeting in in what was still East Germany. You know, we, all that sort of stuff, and we th- we thought that like you know this would open things up. In fact, it proved the complete opposites, basically, uh, and you know, I really ham, hamstrung the left. But so politics was very difficult, and then there was an emerging movement in the nineties. You know the, the the movement, the anti-roads movement that developed in the early '90s. Yeah. It started off with like very, very far away from class politics, or even concerned with capitalism. There were these people called the Dongers, <laughs> much Great, more sort man. of like Fantastic. from a, a, sort of like you know, perhaps a bit from, spiritual. Like I, I'm from not the quite the diggers yet. to the Dongers. The yeah. diggers of the Dongers, yeah. Um, uh, but by the end of like by the end of the 1990s. Like that movement, that anti-roads movement, had basically shifted in towards tr- recognizing capitalism as the as, a, as the problem, basically. Mm. And so that movement went into things. The anti-roads movement went into things such as reclaim the streets, which I don't know whether the, your listeners will know that, but it was a it was quite a big movement that sort of basically would occupy a road, um, and then um, repurpose that road. Usually, it was based around having a party. There was a big sort of politicized party thing going on. You know, Excellent. basically, uh, free parties were banned, you know, for, from the infamous Criminal Justice Bill in 1992. And there were big, 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 big big sort of, like, demonstrations around that, which turned into big parties. Also, it turned into riots as well. And so there was this thing going on. And so yeah, this yeah. would be, like, the, the Reclaim the Streets was this moment where people would reclaim, say, we need to reclaim our cities from cars. We're going to do it. We're going to do it on this street. And we'll, you know, we'll get, a, there'll be people dancing. We'll get a sandpit. We'll get some get some um, armchairs out and all these sorts yeah. of things. And the big one they did was up on a motorway just outside London. It wasn't the M11 because that's still being built. Can't remember which motorway it was. <laughs> um, but basically, they they basically led loads of people up there, started having this huge party. There were these people, these women on, on these huge sort of, like almost on stilts, but like with a huge dress. you know, like, you know, those dresses that, that pump yeah. out, you know, those sort of like Victorian sort of dresses. Like, you know, 15 foot in the air, being wheeled around and all that sort of stuff. It's pumping techno going on. Ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people there. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's too many. Perhaps it's five to 10,000. Sorry, I did no research for coming in. The, the,
0: the, the police had different numbers, yeah,
2: I'm sure they did. Anyway, what was going on on this motorway was underneath those dresses, there were people with jackhammers digging up the motorway and they planted <laughs> a load of trees, basically. And they were using the techno to. Boom! Bang! 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 To sort of drown out the sound of that, and they were just hiding from view. So it was a really beautiful sort of <laughs> moment.
0: I feel like there's there's an element of that in like kind of modern XR stuff, but without maybe the um, I don't know tactical influence of yeah. using the techno and the dresses all, all to dig up roads.
1: All the humor as well. Somehow, I think <laughs> yeah. And maybe. Yeah. No, I think I think that's what I, I really that idea of everybody coming together and it being quite funny as well seems. Yeah, to Yeah. In a different space, right? But it seems to be missing from a lot of um, the the action that we're seeing, and that kind of sense of collectivity as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so did, did you have a jackhammer, or were you in a dress? I
2: wasn't at that one, honest, officer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: <laughs> but um, like that movement then went into, um, like it basically, was th- I'm just trying to tell a story of like this this movement which started off very far away from class politics, moving to. Yeah. Basically becoming the anti-globalisation movement of the turn of the century, basically, right. because the, the anti-globalisation movement is this big, big movement that people think was sparked in Seattle in nineteen ninety-nine, where there's this huge protest against the World Trade Organization and this sort of like the, the, the sort of neoliberal globalisation was being introduced at that point. And the big thing there was that the Teamsters, the Union, the Drivers yeah. Union. And the turtles were connected. So people who campaigned or had save the turtles were connected with the Teamsters. Do you know what I mean? But a month before that, you know, they, they, people had organized this thing called the Carnival Against Capitalism, which was where, like, they, it was a similar thing. People were having a big party in a demonstration, mm-hmm. but in the city of London. And, like, people charged up and tried to occupy the the stock exchange and ended up having the punch-ups on the stairs of the stock exchange of all of these wow. coked-up traders, basically. <laughs> Once again, I wasn't their officer, nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> so so it was this sort of move between from, and by that point, you know, it was much more, this is the problem, the problem is global capitalism. Mm-hmm. It sparked a very big movement all around the world, and it was almost like the rebirth of left politics after it had been really decimated by But by the fall of the Berlin Wall, but also, you know, what that means, the fall of the Berlin Wall, is that, like, the world was split into two before that. And when it's not split into two, and so so you could have global capitalism, basically the the global workforce, which is accessible by capitalism, doubled in a couple of years. Yeah. You know, and of course, if you double anything, you know, the price of that is going to go down, basically. And that's exactly what happened. And that's just a one-off event. That, that, That has never happened before in history. It will never happen again. You know, that's part of why why it was so disastrous for both the left and basically the working class, basically the global working class, although obviously, yeah. you know, things have moved on since. Um, yeah. And then uh, let me just, I tell you what, I am going to tell you my last because it's an interesting <laughs> one because when the, when the anti-globalization movement starts to fall apart, like it, there's there's big things, it has really severe and heavy, um, policing you know people get shot in in Gothenburg in Sweden then mm-hmm. a, a young uh, protester Carlo Giuliani, gets shot and killed in a police riot basically in Genoa in Italy in Christ phew, 91 I think um you know uh, so there's that going on but then there's also it there's also this uh, I, I went to um a big protest in Germany um in Rostock in a uh, Let's say 1995, it might be wrong. I yeah. It might be a bit later. But at that, right, th- so before that, it was the protests were, why should eight people, the G8 meeting say, why should eight people be determining what happens around the world? Yeah, There, the G8, when they met there, they said, we have this problem, climate change. It can only be solved on a global level and we're the only actors. And it was like, fuck, yes. Sorry, am I allowed to swear on this show? Right. If I get Please something? do, please do. God damn. <laughs> so like that was, you could then see that like, okay, They've outsmarted us here because that's yeah. a very good, a very good answer. And so, when that movement fell apart in the UK, there was a big debate about what to do next. Um, and, yeah. and that's where the the camp for climate actions so or the climate camp of the of the two thousands came from. It came out of the anti globalization uh, mobilizations. I personally was arguing we ought to go a different way. I would yeah. say we ought to focus on work and upon precarity. But basically I lost that argument and I, you know, I sort of thought, all right, okay, well, I'll go along with it then because I've been, I've been wrong plenty of times in the past. <laughs> you, know, you have to have a bit and of you humility. You joined the parties, so why not <laughs> yeah, carry yeah. on? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I was involved in, in that. That that camp for climate action that form was the first one happened just outside Leeds actually at Drax yeah. uh, just you know, yeah. near, near Selby. Yeah,
0: I'm uh, I'm from round there, so it's uh, it's kind of I, I imagined you were kind of like on the news when I was, Well, not to yeah. age this, but when I was a child, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, incredible to think. So like I was kind of reading a bit about about the Drax climate camps and you know what happened with the police there and whatnot as they kind of built an iron ring uh, well, yeah. around the place. Yeah, um, w- was Drax then? Just still, it's just all a coal-fired power station. Had it moved to this kind of this new green-washed
2: biofuel entity that it is now? It was still coal. It was like the biggest coal power fi- uh, power station in Europe, and it was it partly in response to that those protests that they introduced this this biofuels cod ecological <laughs> pseudo ecological oh, was- sort of sheen on the, on the top of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Is
0: it, it's it's interesting because that. Because I, I I struggle myself when thinking about like kind of strategy and tactics and the outcomes of, of things and then and, um, you know you wrote last year about how like the don't pay campaign like put pressure on quasi Kwarteng and the and the trust administration to you know do something about the energy prices and mm. you for you to say that the climate camps kind of made Drax pivot I I'm kind of a bit blown away about that I I kind of see them as an actor that doesn't respond to anything so like was there yeah. anything in there like the way they were talking about it, that made it just that your, that your intervention did that? Or is it a case that the, do you think the sea was starting to turn it a- anyway back in 2006?
2: Well, it's probably just a bit of loose talk on my part, actually, because <laughs> with, the, with the with the don't pay thing, I think the evidence is there. You can go through and, and, and like add, tot it at basically and say, you know, that sort of trapped the Tories into overspending and uh, the yeah. markets reacted, you know, so that played some sort of role. But like with, with the climate camp, it sort of built, it was a very weird time, um, mm. I am sorry if this has turned into a like biographical sketch, <laughs> but at the time I was involved in setting up a, a social centre in, in Leeds City Centre called The Commonplace, which then turned into Wharf Chambers. It's still, still there, wow. Wharf Chambers in town. Um, I built one of the fire escapes. God, wow. please, please let there not be a fire. <laughs> 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 That's the one bit which you built, which is still there, I think. Um, um and we've sort of we 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 set that up as part of a mo- the anti-globalization s- s- cycle based there was a there's a protest there was, a, yeah. a, a, prote- there was a, a G8 in Glen Eagles up in Scotland and yeah. we we basically formed a social center and then we took like uh, you know several hundred people up to uh, uh up to Scotland to sort of protest so it was you know that so, so, so when when we had the 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 climate camp the next day that social center was the was the hub from which it was organized mm-hmm. and where the equipment was stored and all that sort of thing. Um I had a friend there Lynn Watson who was part of that me and Lynn were on the yeah. finance committee of the the first finance committee then later on she gets revealed to be an undercover police officer Lynn Watson in a in a uh in a it's a cycle uh, of like, like, undercover should, police should officers who were revealed. <laughs> yeah like Yes, yeah, so, I, yeah. I, I mean another one. I mean, I was part of the group that like led people to to take to occupy the the grounds for the for the camp yeah. to take place just outside. We had to be careful. We we like basically, we, I led people through the night to get to this field. And we occupied this field and we ran up to the farmer's house, a big wad of money, and said, <laughs> um, "Yeah, take this money. We're not shifting, but you may as well rent us the field, don't you?" Now, and he did. <laughs>
0: Um, Take this money and, and
2: shut the, up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the person who drove me up there was another undercover police officer, Mark Kennedy. That's his real name. So we know Lynn right. is Lynn's real name. We don't know what his, what his real second name is. Mark was known as Mark Stone at that time and then was revealed as Mark Kennedy. And so this was a time of, like, really intense police repression. And so I went, I remember taking my daughter down to a, a climate camp in Kings North, another big mm. power station. Um, and, you know, it was, like, preposterous over policing like yeah, insane yeah. like it's so bad in fact that like a young police woman like had to be taken off the front line she was crying basically about like, what they were <laughs> you know this hot Christ. this ridiculous repression and um, and and but because of that basically because of the sort of um, the uncovering of this this mm-hmm. network of undercover police officers which had never really been happened before around the world nobody'd ever yeah. managed to uncover not just one but a whole string of them and the guardian played a big role in that and then there was a, there, there was a, so two thousand and eight happens, which is the big, the big event that we should probably talk about. There's a, there's there a protest in the city of London again, and there was a climate camp there, and it was really brutally repressed, and uh, the police pushed over this guy who was just trying to walk, uh, walk home, basically. He was yeah. walking a bit, so they pushed him over Ian Tomlinson and killed him, basically. So it was that, and this uncovering of the police, like basically, yeah. it really pushed back against police. Rep- the police thing and it basically made the climate camp an incredibly well-known uh thing at the time yeah. which is lead this is around about 2010 so it's really really was like a big big thing as big as xr is now in that sort of yeah, sense yeah. of like you know really dominating public discourse and like discussion about climate change has really mm. risen to the top and there was a big mobilization for the cop 15 which is going to take place in 2010 um in copenhagen <laughs> I went over there, lots of people went over there, you know, and we realised, oh, yeah, like all we're doing is like militant lobbying of politicians (laughs) who are basically fucking uninterested in this. They're not going to do anything.
1: I I was in Berlin in 1991, and I was with a lot of people who were in the Noise Forum and had been involved in pro-democracy movements, and who Mm. kind of wanted things, you know, definitely weren't embracing capitalism, but we're also wanting a world in which they could travel and and like listen to CDs and stuff like that—quite yeah. simple stuff, really. But they, you know, obviously they they talked a lot about Stasi mm. surveillance, and I was in the flat of someone who'd been under Stasi surveillance for 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 a long time, um, and they said every single public phone box had been, you know, had been bugged and and whatever, and there was and they all knew that there was Stasi everywhere. So if you, whatever whatever you did, a lot of them were artists. Whatever you did, whatever you made, wherever you were showing your work, whatever, there would be someone there. And, and it, it sounds very similar when you describe what you're talking about. Yeah. Because um, they, they, they used to say the Stasi modelled itself on the British security. Oh, really? <laughs>
2: right? I didn't know that one, yeah.
1: I mean, that might have just been a kind of <laughs> type thing that they said in East Germany, I don't know. But um, that sort of idea of, you know, undercover... Perhaps I I sort I wonder what difference it, it made and what they were doing and what their role was in what you were doing because it, it to to some degree the Stasi surveillance didn't stop Hanukkah falling and didn't yeah. necessarily stop people doing some of the stuff they were doing they just acknowledged that people were there and so I just wonder what you, you know what your what your perception of the role I mean obviously I think. People did really pretty terrible things on a personal level in terms of forming relationships with people under false pretenses, and that that's really really significant. But um, what what role that kind of surveillance had, mm. and and I think we're in this really interesting moment now because if you grew up sort of eighties nineties, you you expected the police not not to be very supportive, <laughs> and then the, <laughs> and, and and that's you know to put it mildly. Uh, if you were involved in any kind of demonstration or political activity or whatever, or you'd been sort of tangentially touched by the miners' strike or been involved in that kind of stuff. Um, it, it, it's, it's now sort of really becoming clear that that's, that's restarting with the criminalization of protests. But I just wondered what your view of the role of all that surveillance was on what you actually did.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because a lot, a lot of what was going on was like empire building within the police. Um, mm. I basically, people go in undercover. I mean, you know, I can't remember what. Um, so I think Lynn was undercover for five years. Mark Kennedy was undercover for seven years. That's a lot. La- that's a large amount of money. You know, Several million pounds. Um, you know what? What evidence they get? What do they do? They they just they stop people occupying uh, uh, power stations. You know, getting up on. You know. That's one thing I went on that we were going to go and stop her. A, 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 you know, in fact, we're going back to Drax to sort of get up on the <laughs> on the things, et cetera, and, you know, just to bring some publicity to it. They stopped that. We know that. Disrupted a few things. But, like, you know, uh, the commonplace, what we used to do, like, you know, we were doing, like, um, conversation classes over dinner with asylum seekers, you know what I mean? It was like, you know, um, <laughs> a, a five-year... Deployment there is was is utterly unsupportable. Basically, I imagine they were embellishing all sorts of stuff in order yeah. to justify that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, so it's it's quite hard to do a counterfactual about like, well, what happens if that doesn't if that didn't didn't take place? It certainly hindered the development of of the climate movement. But like I say, you know that climate movement it got to a point where. You realised that, like, uh, what we were doing was basically it had a contradiction in it. I, we didn't have the this is a global problem. We didn't have the sort of leverage, um, or uh, uh, to to do anything about this. Basically, do you know what I mean? We we didn't have the leverage to to do more than like militant awareness awareness raising. You know, unfortunately, um, that's basically exactly where Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil are, are stuck. You know
0: yeah uh, 15 years like, later uh, do you know what i mean yeah. it's
2: like uh it's, a, it's i say unfortunately because you know roger hallam who's, who started XR, well i'm just a poil, isn't it you know he had this thing of, like, we we must exclude gatekeepers so anybody who did the climate camp and came to these conclusions and that we must not listen to them which allows <laughs> him to just do the same fucking thing over and over and over again basically
0: jesus christ
2: um, yeah, and it's that problem is like, yeah, well, what? how do you stop this then? What do you do about this? How do you actually make a change in something really, really urgent? You know what I mean? A lot of the people who were involved in the climate camp, you know, lots of them, I saw them about in the sort of Corby moment, the Corby movement. Do you know what I mean? Of like, okay, yeah. well, this is a chance to do, perhaps this is a chance to do something, you know, where you've got, you know, access to some sort of power you prep which I think brings us on to like the rest of cla- like discussions of class and about how you exercise proper, proper leverage basically, yeah. um, in order to try to sort of deal with these huge, huge, huge global problems. Do you know what I mean?
0: I've never known someone to segue on someone else's show, but I really, I really appreciate that. <laughs>
2: Sorry, I realise no. <laughs> you've only asked one question. I'm, ter- I'm hey. terrible, I'm terrible. Sorry, I just told you. No, man, it's
0: great, it's great. I'm, uh, I'm, the, the cutting room floor might, might not enjoy it, but I'm sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. Right, let, let's get into the big dumb questions, as I said earlier. I think that the working class in the 20th century are a fundamentally different beast to the working class in the 21st century. I think that for a few reasons. Mostly due to like material conditions in Britain and, and Europe. I suppose it's a very Eurocentric view. Lack of organ- organizational, like lack of organizing and institutions, so weakness of unions. And thirdly, the third one's probably a bit more spurious that's around kind of culture and says, well, they've been told they don't exist in certain ways, at least for the last 40 years. So with that very rough back of a fag packet hypothesis, I would like to know what you two think about if, what the differences are between the working class in the last century and them now and how that affects organising around climate.
1: I mean, fundamental shifts in, in the nature of work and how people work, number one. Um, my granddad worked in a factory all his life, expected to, everybody around him did that. That is His job was part of his identity. He identified as working class could identify um, the nature of the obstacles he faced quite straightforwardly as well, to some degree, because of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that massive shift in the ways people work. So precarity and precarious employment, and um, this um, real shift from that idea of a job for life yeah. uh, as well, that um, means that, y- you know, and again, you talked about unions, people don't necessarily engage with or understand the nature of trade union organising in a workplace in the same way if you're not working in the same way movement of various kinds of industries out out, out of the global north into the global south as well Kind of there's a profound shift there um, in terms of the nature of work and who's doing that work rise of, kind of a kind of effective economy um, y- y- you know these kinds of jobs that aren't really making anything (laughs) you know where you sell um uh you sell security or you or you or you're talking about risk or you're working in a call center ringing people up saying you know are you worried about dread disease it's that kind of thing massive shift in it for all those reasons unpicks a a lot of the the ways in which previous uh, i think previously people understood themselves and again i think there are broader cultural shifts as well around the kind of this kind of easy sort of association of various kinds of kind of cultural, um, activities, um, predilections and, and work as well. So I think, I think, I think that's, that there, that's my starting point for why things are, um, are different now. Um, over to you, (laughs) Keirna.
2: Well, I'd I'd agree with all of that, Lucy. Yeah. I mean, what to add? I mean, one of the other things i probably add is like um it is the like importance of asset ownership mm. like basically since like the mid 80s wages have been in some form of stagnation i mean they've been in literal stagnation has been there's been no wage growth from 2005 to now which is like the longest period of zero wage growth in history yeah, yeah. of capitalism or going back to the napoleonic wars anyway <laughs> um, and so, you know, what happens when you don't have enough rising wages? Well, basically, there's only one route to uh, increased wealth, and that is to buy a house, basically, and hope that asset prices, house prices, keep rising. Do you know what I mean? So that that yeah. is basically that that also forms a big part of that, and it be, it becomes a difficulty because like a shift in the importance of asset ownership, not just for like you know the home working class, but for for capitalism basically. Mm. Right, where you want to sweat assets, basically, you want to get rents out of owning assets rather than like you know more more classical productive capitalism, which of course still takes place, uh, you know, in, in different parts of the world, but is less important in the UK, which significantly undermines the leverage of workers. Basically, <laughs> I, you know more there's a there's a big section of capitalists who basically do not rely on. On workers, basically. Yeah, or, was... or de- No, sorry. Rely on workers indirectly. We'll put it that way. You know. Uh, so we're, r-
0: we, we interviewed Jason Hickel last week. Ah, right. Okay. And we kind of discussing in that that. To to your point is that, capital right now, like it used to invest, it, like it chases profits, and you know, but and it used to chase productivity because that's where they were associated, like you know, building stuff. Mm. Um, you know, manufacturing, and now all this money is just being dumped into various tech industries, where there's billions and billions of dollars working on like uh, neural networks and AI and things that mm. are interesting and could have you know emancipatory. That could be good in the future for people, but right now it's just a massive speculative kind of yeah. bubble. So yeah. it's not as if the the capitalists today go and build a factory in in Doncaster or somewhere and expect to make the same returns if they want to make a quick book now they will invent a form of currency and stick a meme yeah. on the front of it and then say that's me doing capitalism which yeah, I mean, is absolutely yeah, different yeah
1: <laughs> but there's, there's massive i mean you, you know you've got this this, this process as well where uh, uh, jobs are replaced people are replaced i mean because it's, it's that that's the logic of profit right so yeah. you Track the most you can whilst out- your outlays, you're trying to minimise your outlays. So mm. robots are better than people because they don't need time off. And so you've got this big shift. I mean, when people people often sort of talk about sort of austerity as being kind of like a return to the 19th century. But in the 19th century, capitalists built parks and they built things like Salt Air and they built yeah. <laughs> they built model villages and things like that because the idea was there was something in investing in the health of a workforce because mm. It, it meant that they stayed productive, but you wouldn't get that now because um, the idea is to squeeze as much as you can out of people and that's why you've got this massive erosion. You know, you see it in the university sector.
0: Yeah, you might, you might get a ping-pong table at Google headquarters and that's kind of like as far as that goes. But I think
1: Google's slightly different actually probably in, in terms of the ways it works, say, you, you know, the, I, I would say kind of how higher education works, for instance, in this country or other sectors where, you, you know, you can create a big surplus labour force of people who are desperate for work and therefore you have no need really. The kind of people who used to think themselves at the center of something are now probably the most replaceable and the most expendable because of how the market has changed and the logic of this this kind of development. And then of course you have, you know, you have this world where everybody rents, you know, and it's the people who own the kind of thing that you you rent, yeah. if it's property or whatever, or, you know, at Amazon Prime or, or, or Netflix. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. It's,
2: it's yeah. grim. Yeah, I, I, I bet I agree with both of you on, on that. And just Andrew on the on the sort of like um, you know, cryptocurrency and AI is a bit like it's basically the next hype around the cryptocurrency. Yeah. Is yeah, yeah, you know, um, like that is basically what happens when you have stagnation and there's there's like a limited place to invest as productive capital yeah. or something like that in production. So um, should
0: should should I equate AI right now to the uh, Netherlands tulip? Uh, like bubble in the in the 17th century is essentially the same thing.
2: Um, I, I, yeah, sort of. Yeah, <laughs> it was probably a bit more disruptive than like you know a load of like, a of flowers. By, by you try get rid of all those fucking flowers though. Like that would have been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my, my my hay fever was bonkers last last week, so I'd prefer crypto to uh, <laughs> <laughs> crypto to, to tulips. Goddamn tulips! <laughs> God damn, tulips. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I think this uh, uh, Lucy also. I think you were. You're making a really good point about, like, basically, there's a tendency for capital to flee to try to escape from labor, to flee from mm-hmm. labor, uh, and it's because you know, of all of all commodities, labor is the commodity that can be insubordinate and rebel, basically, mm-hmm. and so that you know, one of the ways, places that it flees is into like automation, etc., which is why you then get these all of the the, the sort of films and the sort of myths about robots rebelling, basically, robots becoming yeah. the insubordinate, taking on the characteristics of labor, et cetera, you know, Terminator, etc. all that sort of stuff. Um, but another way to look at that, which would bring us to this sort of how how class and capitalism and, and like, environmentalism sort of sit together is that, like, another way to look at that is that it, it, in some ways, capitalism might flee from human labor <laughs> um, uh, into dumping costs onto nature, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean yeah, the most obvious one of that is how do you replace human labour? Well, you dig up a load of coal, burn it, and then get your spinning jennies. Do you know what I mean? All the Luddites knew yeah, yeah. that. Um, uh, you know, and that you know, that that sort of thing. Um, but it's also that that, yeah, the other the other part is like, you know, there's there's the, there's this thing of like capital always wants to dump its costs on something. You can dump them onto onto yeah, labour or 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 humanity, you know, basically expect the family to pick up uh, to, to, to reproduce the workers so they can get there in the, you know, the factory the next day. You can dump, dump those costs off, you know, big society, all of that. It's all about dumping those costs off. Or you can dump those costs off into into, into nature as pollution, etc. cetera, that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? And what that sets up is this sort of, there's a potential there for a form of green politics which you actually, you know, want to protect nature at the expense of humanity, if you know. Yes. Not yeah, 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 at the expense of of labour, basically.
0: Well, I, th- I think this, this kind of... Yeah, you're brilliant at this, Keir. Segue into my next points. Is, uh, <laughs> is this... I think there's kind of an, an idea in between the, these three spaces, between capital, like labour, and, and the environment, where there's a form of green politics, which is kind of, I think, has been pedestaled in a way, that says, like, green politics means that your life must get materially worse. Mm. It means that you can't, you know, fly to Malaga on your holiday. You can't have a nice car and you know you can't eat steak five times a week i suppose it's like that's a weaponization of somewhat the boundaries of existence in the uh, on the planet and this is something Mm. that kind of degrowth gets a lot of stick for saying that you know like people like matt Matt Huber kind of talk about how degrowth is framed around you know what anti-working class in certain certain ways and i'm i'm wondering how do we kind of fight against that in right now in, in the kind of current political situation you know mm. we've got a potentially a labor government that may happen in the next two years knock on wood maybe i'm i'm unsure about the whole situation anymore uh their version of green politics seems to be like traditional labor version of it is that we're going to just focus on power and infrastructure and not really deal with any of the kind of cultural side of this from, from what i've read so far I kind of see that as a bit of a dead end because it doesn't really take into account the fact that there are boundaries to our existence as a, as a planet, which maybe some of the more stronger kind of green politics are. So I feel like green politics now is in a bit of a weird, precarious place between people who yeah. are, you can be really snobbish and snotty about it, or you could be seen as someone who wants to, you know, reduce your livings to being a peasant farmer again. Mm. So where's our space in that as I guess socialist or anarchists or or leftists in in general. There's yeah. <laughs> not a trap.
2: I have <laughs> renounced my uh, anarchist euphilia anarchist deviations <laughs> um, It was a different time. Um, there's a couple of questions there. We should definitely come back to like the Labour's version of the like 28 billion that and uh, they've got set aside. Uh, yeah. we should come back to that because I think that is a really big battleground. you know, not on very favourable grounds for us either. That battleground. But um, we, bet we really, really need to come back to it. But um, yeah, there's another debate going on, which is between like eco modernists, we'd say, and like the degrowth sort of thing. And, and like you know, degrowth is a terrible way to, to, to talk about that. Um, and there's, there's something to be careful about all all the time when when that. I mean, I'm I'm probably more on the sort of degrowth um, side of that. And like, yeah, the, the real big problem is is um, well, there's a few there's a few problems <laughs> in it, right? One of them is. Um, if you just start talking about degrowth, et cetera, um, at the moment, you know, or even any sort of green transition, right, people are going to expect a green transition in which they have no control over this mm. and they're going to pay the costs. You know, that is basically right. <laughs> they are very right in that. <laughs> Underneath that, that basically that gives birth to all of these sorts of, you know, like 15 minute conspiracy theories and these sorts of yeah. stuff and people flying off. You know, basically losing touch with reality. To, to to be perfectly honest, but like the impulses behind that are pretty. That's like not a you know that's an, a fairly acute yeah, summary of like how green the, the how green transition will happen unless the balance of forces are, uh, and the balance of forces are changing society. Basically, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. In terms of like the, the more like long longer sort of. um uh, like the the idea of like you know yeah this this sort of green transition are we uh, should we be eco modernists or should we be uh, degrowers etc etc like basically that the the sort of key to that is we probably should be travelling less about by, by airplanes do you know what I mean I mean there, there are there are like natural boundaries that exist outside human belief. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. doesn't matter whether you believe the carrying capacity of the of carbon in the atmosphere is such or such. That's there. That's independent of human, of human uh, belief yeah, systems we, we, we and we will so find
0: forth. out very quickly what it is.
1: <laughs> I mean, I always think it's the, the, the problem is that degrowth has become sort of tied to this deductive logic. We're going to take stuff away from you. Yeah, You'll,
2: yeah,
1: um, yeah. And, and, and rather than a redistributive logic, yeah. i.e., we will spread things around. Yeah. You may, and, 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 you know, if you talk to somebody like Julia Steinberger, she's really clear that actually where we're, we're at now will involve people having to accept changes mm. in order to be able to have a livable, you know, a, li- a livable world. Yeah. The, the thing is that from our perspective, I guess you'd say, well, look, there's, and, and w- when we talk to people on the show, a lot of people are like, "Well, you know, there's enough out here, and all we have to do is share it around, and it just makes sense." And you think, "Well, yeah, <laughs> if that always made sense, socialism always made sense. It was always fairer, right? Um, there was always, uh, you know." But it's about the fact that the people who you might you might be talking about and these kind of obscene sort of. Um, amounts of wealth held by such a few amount of people. They're the people with all the power, aren't they? It's always difficult when you start to go for and talk about um, a rad- radical change, economic change that will involve ch- changing that balance as well. So I think I think it's really difficult because I, I think I'm definitely on the kind of ge- degrowth side, but I can see that degrowth is like this major, <laughs> kind of, you know, in lots of ways, a kind of major error in describing what that might mean, yeah. which really is yeah. re- Contribution to enable people to, to you know, to to prevent mass extinction events and mass displacement and mass death. Mm. Um, yeah,
2: and not just that, but like inflation. Yeah, <laughs> really driven quite a long a long way yeah, by yeah. you yeah. know. So our declining because that's I, I mean, what's one of the points I was gonna I was thinking I'd try and make was that you know, in a way, we are living with climate change now, and uh, and like that is producing class politics of course because we yeah. live in a class society so yeah the, like the cost of living crisis lots of different causes but like behind that the reason it's never ever going to go down to that like the, the low inflation period we had before is because the effects of climate change i.e you know um uh, increased uh, uh extreme weather events and the shortages and the problems that that produces etc that's not going to go away that's going to increase you know what i mean yeah. which means that like that's going to polish push inflation up etc um like So one of the, what, I think what we need, what one of the, the key is like, you basically don't talk about degrowth. <laughs> what you talk about is you have to sort of step back a bit and think about, well, let's have a think about how consumption takes place and why consumption mm-hmm. has the patterns it does now. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. One of them is uh, that we work far, far too long and hard. Uh, you know, it, it exhausts us. You know, the working week hasn't been shrinking the way that people thought it would in the past. You know what I mean? Um, And that's partly why you have these patterns of consumption, like I want to fly away and have two weeks abroad, that sort of pattern of consumption, basically. Uh, And the rest of the sort of consumption we have, where we go and have a ready meal, et cetera, because you get back from working, you're knackered, and all that sort of stuff. You need a car because why? Well, look, we all live in Leeds. Oh, well, uh, we all have (laughs) Leeds connections. (laughs) Public transport almost does not exist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, But like public transport in Leeds is insane, isn't it? You know, it's utterly insane. But I want to go and catch a train like if it's in the morning i you know i'm pretty cautious about getting a bus because i don't I have no idea how long that bus is going to take mm. to go and get a train so you end up like getting a taxi in and there's nowhere to park around this st- like but i i understand my patterns of behavior are driven by these constraints these like infrastructural and like social constraints which uh you know constrain my choices offer me a limited range of choices do you know what i mean I so what you, what you have to do with that is saying, look, you know, you're not going to have... If you change things in the, the, the way we organise things, you're not going to have the same patterns of consumption. You're yeah. not going to want them, right? It would make no sense. If you had public transport, which was, you know, really reliable, etc. cetera, the, the need for a car or the, you know, the need for a car all the time just really, really diminishes. Do you know what I mean? And then yeah. you have to think about the, the different circumstances of people who live outside, you know, peri-urban. But, like, you know, that... The, so basically, my 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 main point is this: I, I'm involved in setting up an organisation called Abundance. You know, I'm, the abundance we've we've got in mind is like we want an abundance, like not of, you know, um, of of, of you know, stuff. the latest <laughs> iPhone the stuff. You what? What do people want? You want more control of your life.
0: Yeah.
2: And part of what having more control of your life means is you have more time under your control and not under the control of capital, mm. right? That means you have a very different pattern of life. So what you want is a democratic economy, basically, in which you have much more control over what goes on, much more control over what goes on in your area, much more control over like how a green transition will take place. So you don't think it's imposed and you've been involved in the deliberations about how it happens. And then all of a sudden, like somebody says, 15 minute cities, conspiracy, they're to trap us in Arthur. Well, no, no, actually, you know, we had an assembly about this. Uh, we basically decided we're, we're allowed to travel outside. The, you know, you basically <laughs> say, I was involved in that decision. You're crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? At the minute, you can't say that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's that, like, you have to think about, like, that is the sort of change we're on about. We're having to, if you want to, there's a different ways in which green transition can take place. One of them is going to be centralization of, of, of assets, mm-hmm. centralization of wealth and power, and us basically having like, being, having no choice but to rent everything, cars, absolutely everything off these incredibly wealthy people who we have brain. no democratic access to, no control over. Yeah. And, like, just to go back, sorry, I'm a terrible ranter. I, no, just I, I, I to have that. such
0: a big question anyway that it's, you know, you can <laughs> pick and choose what you want to talk about.
2: But, like, just to go back to that, like the, the like, how is green transition going to take place? That 28 billion that Labour have said, and now they're rolling yeah. back on a bit and all that sort of stuff. At the minute, it looks like they're going to be following what joe biden mainly was doing in joe biden's uh, inflation reduction act which yeah. was like a really big huge investment actually which has rolled, been rolled back a bit but it's still a real significant change and like it, there what's mainly happening is that you're doing public private partnerships
0: yeah it's, right? it's, which is it's where it's the tax state- credits and yeah you're yeah pumping yeah. money yeah. into yeah. sectors to let them to like yeah prime pump stuff yeah
2: yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. But even more than that, I think now, because like industrial strategy is back. So they get like governments are going to be like that. What people used to criticize the government for, for nationalization, was that they would pick the winners and the losers rather than the market.
0: Yeah.
2: Check that out the window, that critique now, because the government is going to be choosing the companies who are going to do stuff and they're going to give them lots of money. Right. And like this is something that, like in particular, like the, the BlackRock and the big asset managers, yeah. the sort of like asset um uh, People who hold like BlackRock hold like I don't know something like one third of, of the the shares in the in the US uh, stock exchange or something yeah. ridiculous like that. You know they are saying this is what this is the way you do green transition. We've got the capital. You take away if the state takes on all of the risks, right? Does yeah. all the risky stuff. We'll I've pile heard in. This <laughs> yes, it's a very familiar story. We'll pile in and we'll do the green transition for you. Guess what? At the end of it, we're going to own fucking everything yeah. basically, and that wealth is going to accrue to us.
0: I just wanted to roll back a little bit on something we've, we've been talking about, kind of about the, the degrowth eco modernism uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. arg- arguments. Is that there's definitely a, a, a there's definitely like a slither of this argument, which is a, which is moralizing. You know, there's there's an argument, especially I think in the ways that things rebellion operate as well, as saying like you know you're what you're doing is bad for the world and you're and you're a bad person. Is have you got like a moral argument about abundance about like saying oh, we will have. Everything we need, and that will be a better way. Like, how do you stop people feeling bad about wanting things?
2: Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm not yeah, high, I'm... I
0: swear. I'm not high, I swear. <laughs> I've, I've, I've had a baby, you will stop I've people wanting things.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's like a Buddhist strategy, isn't it? You have to <laughs> yeah. renounce all your possessions and stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but like, to be serious, like, that there is a real, real danger in green politics around that sort of Malthusianism, yeah. which can often be very, very racist. It's like you know the yeah, Green yeah. Party came out of one of the one of the sources of the Green Party was this this organization. But basically, there was a, a series of businessmen in it who'd read this this article by um, what's his name Ehrlich, who was basically you know one of the first sort of like overpopulation sort of theorists. Apps, mm. I've just read a book called Paolo Alto by uh, Malcolm Harris, uh, and it just lays out this like absolutely stone cold racist eugenics, genesis basically you know, basically really far right guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, And that's one of the sources that fed into this. That's that sort of, you know, what we need to, we need the population's too big. We need to reduce it. We're not going to reduce it here in the UK. We'll, we have to reduce it amount, you know, that population of Africa is going to get big, that sort of stuff that comes out all the time. Like like you know what I mean?
0: That explicit as well, like.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, with, with, um, yeah, no, I mean, not, I've got to cut my cloth a little bit (laughs) carefully here, but. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, that's basically behind that. A lot of right. that Malthusianism is basically, uh, yeah, there are eugenic arguments behind but, it. I, right. Andrew,
1: the, the, those arguments exist in all of the health uh, economics around prenatal testing, around disability, for instance, and, yes. disability yeah, yeah. and and healthcare rationing for disabled people and the reasons why lots of disabled people die during the pandemic is... Cut cut away the kind of um, sort of rhetoric uh, around equality and diversity underpinning all of our systems is a real brutal utilitarian logic which says Mm. people are are more valuable than than others, and that you see filtering through into a lot of green politics and this kind of politics, which is all about kind of some kind of return to some sort of primitivism. (laughs) Yeah yeah that it really only suits um some bodies and some you know and not others yeah. and yeah, that's no, no, totally. we've got to, we've got
2: to avoid that well i'm, I'm really saying that because i'm raising that because like, like we can't just think that we have to be careful when we talk about these degrowth and these sorts of things yeah. like like that and, and so <laughs> yeah the, the, yeah and we have to keep in mind like you know capitalism is the the cause of this you know what i mean it's a a, we live in a system which has got this inbuilt dynamic to basically to grow uh, to grow at the maximum rate the, you know and you, yeah. you've got to meet or beat the market average or you've got a business, so it's not about the morality of any of the people involved, not about the morality mm-hmm. of the people in you know, at the top of BP or anything like that. you know
0: Well I think they're different actually. I think the people at the top of BP are probably have a moral failing in the fact that they're organizing the end of the world very explicitly. I think yeah. that I think there is a distinction between those two sets of people.
1: But there is a systemic problem as well that you can kind of disengage sort of you you know it's there there are sort of big systemic structural problems that we yeah. have to sort of uh, we yeah, have yeah. to think as well people and that's cuz that's where that moral thing comes into it as well because I know that consumption patterns were different when my granddad was young than they are now mm-hmm. and that's that's not that's because, you know, we're in a world where we're endlessly encouraged to click and, and, and accept and <laughs> No, it's not podcasts, podcast, yeah. but it's like that trail of things that we do that generates surplus value. For yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, 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 totally. I sort as though I'm slagging off jet, Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. I sort of am. But, like, I totally understand <laughs> it. Like, it's like... Mm. Like, we live in this world which is, you know, we live in a completely unreal situation where, like, the thing that everybody really knows is going on is going to really be basically determine the future of their lives and their children's lives is basically unacknowledged at all times. And, you know, I always always have this thing about, like... um, I don't want to shock you and your listeners now, but we're all gonna die, basically. We all know what? that. We know that we are, we all know that we are mortal beings, but we don't ca- we don't carry that knowledge around in front of us all the time. Yeah. We hide it here just behind your left ear, so it's just out of sight, and it <laughs> creeps in uh, like when you wake up at four in the morning or something like that. And you push it back in. Oh no, no, I'll worry about that later. I think climate change is sort of dealt with a bit like that. Do you mm. know what I mean? And it's got this like multiplier effect because Ah oh, well, like it can't be that serious because surely, surely somebody be doing something about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and, and nobody is, and so it's you know it's that thing of like, and so you they all you know these young young people like gluing themselves to. Van Gogh and stuff like that. It is they're running in and say, "For fuck's sake, yeah. what's going on? Be fucking realistic. What we, we, what 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 is going on? We all know this is happening. And we we basically act as though it isn't happening. Basically, so I can totally understand this like a cry of like." you know please please let's please let's face up to reality do you know what i mean oh, yeah, like, unfortunately it, i don't think it's the best strategy for actually changing things but like i could totally understand what what people are doing do you know what i mean
0: well yeah this um, is this is the crux of it isn't it like if the end of the world is nigh and you have any power to stop it taking any action is is a form of and do doing something you know, like you were you were engaged in the in the process so you know gluing yourself to soup um That shouldn't be disparaging. Like, I really appreciate those guys doing what they're doing because I just fucking talk in my bedroom, you know, (laughs) once a week about this, doing as adding more hot air to the problem. But you're right. It's like, well, it's the same problem you were experiencing back in 2006. basically like lobbying intensely in a militant way to a, a, in a lot of ways, with the XR and Just Top Oil stuff, is like, not to an unknown actor, but to an unengaged actor where it's just Mm. like out into the world. Um. Which I guess is where we need the class politics to come in for for there mm. to be consequences outside of that particular space at that particular time.
2: Mm. I you mean know? I do think that is happening. I sort of I, I think there is a learning process going on. You know, like I rehearsed that story of the nineties where we start off with the dongers <laughs> yeah. and then people basically act and then they start thinking and like, Oh yeah, hang on a minute. Yeah, hang on, we've sort of realize this is it's yeah. capitalism, isn't it? We need to deal deal with that. I think that is actually going on in in the in xr as sort of coming you know those sort of discussions are going on i even think in, in just our oil as well those sort of sorts discussions are going on but it takes a big shift in like you know well what do you do about it is a very 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 difficult difficult problem basically and you know it all it'll take all you know it takes all sorts of like um action and stuff like that um you know to sort of deal with it but like you know just to go back again when I said I argued that we shouldn't do the climate camp, I argued we should concentrate <laughs> on work. And my problem was, my 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 argument was, look, the most important thing is to change the balance of forces in society, basically, yeah. so that, like, you know, uh, the the working class, most broadly drawn, has more power and can and can exercise its influences. We cannot assert our interests. We cannot, at the moment, really find it very, very difficult. And so who det- whose interests are in determining the way that like, you know, the green transition is going to happen. Well, like the, I can't remember his name now. the head of BlackRock. He has, you know, they're putting a lot of effort into this to, yeah. to, to, to lobby, which, you know, when I think there will be a, a, a I think Labour will get in. I think it'll, I think it'll reduce a little bit, but it, it, it's a bit like a, you know, before Blair got in, you know, the Tories had blown themselves out basically. Mm. And they have now they've totally blown themselves out. Um, I, pretty sure Rachel Reeves who is my MP I'm pretty sure her instincts are going to be going with this well we let private capital sort it all out sort of thing but like there's a you know you can only do that if you don't create a big big if there's not a movement around there saying no like yeah. you know that is the problem that is the problem handing over this huge amounts of money so that like the inequalities of society just get exacerbated we lose more and more power we are, you know we 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 are left as like these sort of like Feudal serfs renting off our mm. of these people who own you know absolutely all of the infrastructure in society, which is sort of what we do now you know well, if you want an image of the future, look at Elon Musk jerking off on Twitter, uh, but for every pit of infrastructure we want forever to uh, massacre uh, George Orwell and on that bombshell <laughs> well, I think that's a brilliant place to stop uh, th- Thank you, for being a brilliant guest and uh,
0: talking about literally everything. This is the part of the show where we give a bit of love to the fighters, the healers, and the conservers of the world, doing their best to help out all of us. It's the shout out. Kia, who do you want to give a bit of love to this week?
2: Um, I want to give a shout out to my mate uh, Isaac Rose, uh, who is um, just across the Pennines there, in Manchester. Is involved in Greater Manchester Tenants Union and Greater Manchester Housing Action. Who do loads of really, really good, really, really good organising around housing, and he's uh, involved in particular in this in this uh, campaign called Block the Block, which is this campaign to, to stop this purpose-built student accommodation, 13-storey building um, uh, being built, uh, you know, basically in, a, in an area of, of social housing. Uh, it's a really interesting campaign. They've got a community plan, an alternative plan for the area and all that sort of stuff, and he does loads of good work. So big up, Isaac.
0: Fantastic. And uh, for any of you who are out there who are doing the good fight, we love you, we appreciate you, and I hope you'll join us again next week. We'd like to say a massive thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon with a special shout out to Lizzie, Jill Burke, Kaylee Woods, Hartley and Guillermont. Uh, if you'd like to join these amazing people and support the show, head to patreon.com forward slash GND UK. And if you can't afford to help us out, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much.